All right, you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, this is uh, week four, stanza number four, part four of this psalm. Uh, we took a, a little bit time off. Uh, we, uh, we heard, or we were at the picnic last week, and I hope that that was an enjoyable time for you. And uh, now we're just getting back into the swing of things. We've not had a Sunday evening service since uh, uh, July 20 or July 14th. So it's been a while. So we're back into Sunday evening tonight. So be ready for that. Uh, I hope you'll be able to come out to that. I'm excited to get back into the word and get back into our series on Sunday nights, which we're going through the pastorals. So this week is really just a a week uh, getting back into the swing of things, so to speak, after a couple weeks of uh, various activities and fun stuff going on. Uh, But this morning we're in Psalm 119. Uh, We are really plodding our way through this psalm, 176 verses, eight verses at a time, 22 stanzas, and we're, uh, as as we've seen already in only three weeks of time, that, that the psalmist is really just belaboring the point, hammering the point home that God's word ought to be the priority in the Christian life, that these scriptures are our foundation. And there's so many people that want to get away from reading the Bible or they don't think it's a priority in their life so they don't read the Bible. Uh, this is and ought to be our priority. This is what David was learning. This is what he was uh, coming to realize that all throughout his life, this word ought to remain preeminent, ought to remain the priority. And you can see here, even in just the stanzas we've already gone through, just uh, how David is just recounting the ways that God's word has spoken to him. As we've seen, as we've mentioned, that no matter the season of life that you're in, God's word has something to say. has something to say to you. It has something that can uh, apply right to where you are. It's, as we've said, it's unceasingly relevant. There are so many people that uh, want to get away from the scriptures and want to make it more relevant or whatever. Uh, it, the, the scriptures are relevant right to where we are. They are. It, this is a very human book. It's a very uh, earthy book. It's a real book. It's things that have happened to real people all throughout history. And, and, and it's recounting all the ways that God has interceded on behalf of real people all throughout history too. So let's read our stanza for this morning. This is Psalm 119, verses 25 through 32. Uh, David writes, My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I have declared my ways, and thou heardest me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. I have stuck unto thy testimonies, O Lord, put me not to shame. I will run the way of thy commandments, when thou shalt enlarge my heart. So this is the fourth stanza. And notice again all the different words for God's word that he employs. Notice he says, cleaveth unto the dust, quicken thou me according to thy word in verse 25. In ways, in statutes in verse 26. He calls them precepts and works in verse 27. Word in verse 28 and 29. The way of lying versus the, the, versus the law. He says there, and then verse 30, the way of truth and thy judgments. Verse 31, testimonies. 
in verse 32, commandments. Again, you can see all the different ways that David is viewing the word. Sometimes it commands him to do something. Sometimes it testifies of something to us. Sometimes it tells of the works of God. It has a word to say in all of our seasons. And I think even here in stanza number four, I think really what we, what we find here as I was studying and reading these verses, we, I think we really find sort of the threefold operation of repentance, I like to call it. The, the threefold operation of repentance what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to, uh, to repent of your ways? Well, I think really here in these eight verses, you really see a clear picture of, at least as it is in David's life, what it means to repent. In verses 25 through 29, firstly, in this threefold operation, number one, we have an acknowledgement of weakness. An acknowledgement of weakness. Look again. At verse 25, he says, my soul cleaveth unto the dust. Verse 28, my soul melteth for heaviness. Verse 29, remove from me the way of lying. Very clearly in these verses, David is being completely honest about his weakness. It's obvious to him. He knows that he is not who he ought to be. He knows that he is not a very strong man. And this is coming from the man who is called the man after God's own heart. And here he is here and he's claiming, he's testifying, he's confessing. My soul cleaveth to the dust. He doesn't try to cushion himself or embellish his uh, embellish his personality or his actions or his life in any way. He doesn't try and, and, and take off the law from that. He readily confesses his weakness. He readily confesses the fact that he is not clinging to what is true. He is clinging to the dust, he says. My soul cleaveth to the dust, verse 25. Really, what that means there is that, that, same, that word there, cleaveth, means, it means to stick. And basically what he's saying, my soul sticks to rubbish. It's sticking to nothing. My soul is actually addicted to the dust of the earth. That I am yours, God, but I know that my soul often longs after what is not profitable. It longs after rubbish. You don't have to raise your hands, but I, I can testify to you that this is my soul as well. There's, this, there's seasons where, right, where we feel so close and intimate to God and we're, we're saying, I feel like I'm clinging to truth. And then there's other seasons where we feel like we are clinging to nothing but rubbish. <laughs> we have to pray to God. As he says here, that my soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me. Make me alive. Shake me off. Shake off this dust from me. I don't want to be clinging to it anymore. I don't want to stick to this rubbish anymore. This is our condition. This is David confessing his weakness. He, like us, was constantly inundated with what his flesh wanted, with what his heart craved. Yes, his heart was redeemed, but yes, his heart was still craving after the things of this earth, the dust of the earth. And David felt this deep in his soul. That yes, he was rescued from sin, but the sin of his life had, wasn't eradicated yet. And that's because that's our condition as well. That we are saved from the power of sin right here, right now, but the presence of sin still infiltrates our life, still affects our souls and our hearts and our minds. 
Such is what David, I think, is confessing to us here, that he felt the same way that we often feel, that we feel totally powerless against our soul uh, being addicted to dust, he says. And such is why he confesses in verse 28 just the sorrow he feels. Notice what he says. My soul melteth for heaviness. Literally, that means he's, his soul is dripping with sorrow. His soul is just dripping with the grief that he feels. The grief that he feels because he knows he can't shake off this addiction to dust. This, this, this sticking to rubbish. He can't shake it off in himself. And he's melting under the heaviness of that. He's dripping with sorrow at that fact. This is the man after God's own heart, who we are told elsewhere in the historical books, that who, who had a heart like a lion, and yet here his heart is grieving with sadness, grieving with heaviness, because he knew that this old life he could not shake, this dust he could not shake off by himself. David, the king, is acknowledging his weakness. This is what it means to repent. Repentance necessitates just what David is showcasing here, vulnerability. He's showcasing the fact that he is vulnerable with God. It, that's what repentance necessitates. It involves admitting and acknowledging your weakness. That you can't shake off this addiction to dust. That you can't fight this sin in your life on your own. Again, that's why David was confessing his condition here. He's confessing the fact that he's weak. Also in verse 26, we learn that he is telling God about his life. Look at what he says. I have declared my ways. Literally, he's telling God about his life. Which I think is an interesting fact. Because God knows about his life. God knows everything. God sees everything. And David is making a point to tell God about his life, to declare his ways. Again, he isn't lying about who he is. He's not uh, trying to come up to God and say, look at all the times that I've spent in your word. Look at all the things that I'm doing for your name. Look at all the things that I have accomplished. No, he comes to God and says, my soul is cleaving unto dust. The man after God's own heart, here confessing his condition, not lying about his life, but being honest about it. Acknowledging his weakness. I have to tell you that, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it so silly that we think that we can fool God sometimes? I think that's the silliest thing. We think that we can pretend that God doesn't see our heart. <coughs> that God doesn't know our thoughts. But we think that we can fool him. We think that we can uh, shake off that sin in our life, that we can shake off that rebellion, that we can just kind of hide it. We can put it in the shadows. We can put it somewhere where God doesn't see, where God doesn't know. And that's where we get that psalm. I think it's Psalm 139 where David confesses that even in the depths of hell, you are there. You know me even there, God. There's nowhere where you aren't. God knows all of this. We can't hide our rebellion we can't pretend things that we did uh, didn't happen or things that we said weren't said. That's why it's amazing to me that we think that we can lie to God, but we can't. 
And what David is, is showing here is not that, that is again, the glorious grace of God. Because God knows all of our hearts and thoughts and actions and, and deepest longings of our souls. He's called the searcher of hearts in Jeremiah 17. And yet, he doesn't utterly eradicate us by all of those thoughts. He knows all of that and he hears David confess. He wants that confession He wants that acknowledgement of weakness. And that's really what repentance is. Repentance is you acknowledging what God already knows about you. (laughs) When you go to God and you repent of something that you have done and you ask for his forgiveness, number one, you are acknowledging what God already knows about you. You are just readily admitting what God already knows, but also when you are asking for forgiveness, you're laying hold of forgiveness that's already there. It's already been given to you. I think about this because, you know, like, sometimes I think we think that when we repent, it's like we're unlocking the door to God's forgiveness, and then it comes out like a rush. But that's not what's happening. You're already, when you repent and ask forgiveness, that forgiveness is already there for you. Why? Because Jesus already died on the cross. <laughs> You're just laying hold of something that's already there. You're laying hold of something that's already true. So you don't have to doubt whether God will forgive you. He already has in Jesus Christ. He's paid for all of your sins, past, present, and even future, yes. So when you repent, you are laying hold of something that's already true. That's why you don't have to doubt that forgiveness. I don't know if you were like that when you were younger, or because uh, I, re- I remember being that way. Uh, I grew up in church, so I heard all these stories all the time. And so when I was saved, it was easy for me to doubt whether it was really true because I had come so familiar with it. I'd become too familiar with it, at least familiar in a, in a mental way. It, w- it hadn't reached my heart. I wasn't saved till I was 16, but I had been in church for 16 years and heard all the sermons heard all the stories heard all the ways you could expound the gospel and so when I got saved it was so easy for me to doubt how do I know that this now at 16 was real how do I know this was true it's because it's true in Jesus it's true in what he has done it's true and firm and certain in what he has done There's a quote, I didn't write it down, and I should have. I think it's by this guy named Henry Beveridge, which he talks about the fact that you can't even, uh, you, you don't even have to trust in your repentance because even your tears of repentance need repenting of. That's how deep and, and infectious your sin is. And if that's the case, then how do you know that your repentance is real or true or good? It's because of who you are repenting to, Jesus. That even as you're crying with grief because you know that your soul is cleaving to the dust, that your soul is melting with heaviness because of this, 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 this habit you can't shake, this thought that you can't get rid of, this, these words that you know that you've said that have hurt so many. Why can you be confident in what, uh, in what Jesus has said about you? It's because he has said it. And that he has said it and confirmed it forever in the person and work of himself. When you repent, you're laying hold of something that's already firm and true and certain. Jesus forgiving sinners. 
This is what repentance necessitates. It necessitates that very thing at the very beginning, acknowledging your weakness. But also, number two, in these same verses, repentance also involves an appeal for strength. Look again at verse 25. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I have declared my ways, and thou heardest me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So so shall I talk of thy wondrous works. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. So here, coupled with this acknowledgement and this admission that you are just utterly weak, you are incapable of, of, of saving yourself, of being strong enough to resist yourself, is this appeal to God for strength. Quicken me, he says, verse 25. Strengthen me, in verse 28. Literally, that word quicken, make me alive. Make me alive. Make me to stand. Make me to live. Make me to be strong. Really, those, those verses are echoing one another. He's confessing the deep sorrow of his soul, and that he's appealing to God for strength. And notice, excuse me, notice the source. Notice the way that he is, is told of where this strength is. He says in both, wor- both verses, according unto thy word. You want to know how to feel confident in what Jesus says about you? Read what Jesus says about you. Read what Jesus says about himself. Read the Bible. <laughs> You want to be confident in, in, in a, this appeal to strength? You want to be told where you, can feel, um, where you can feel at peace and at rest knowing that Jesus has saved you? Read the words of Jesus' salvation. Read the words of Jesus' intercession for you. Read your Bibles. My dad used to say this and in the years of, of my just short time in ministry. I can say the people, the, the folks who struggle, the folks who are doubting, oftentimes it leads back to a case of them not being in the Word. And I'm not saying that that's the cure-all, but I'm just saying that uh, if you are inundating yourself with the Scriptures, you're inundating yourself with the truth. What, what Jesus, what God himself has, says, has said about you. That yes, you are utterly weak, but yes, I am strong for you. And that takes a long time, I think, to get into our heads and our minds and our hearts and our souls. It takes a lifetime. And that's the point. You will never come to a point where you say, ah, I've got it. I've figured it out. I've got this Christian thing down. (laughs) I'm really at peace. No. There's going to be storms. There's going to be incredible seasons like David where you feel utterly destitute, where you feel like, how in the world could God save me? I'm addicted to dust. I'm addicted to this thing, this word, this image, this this thought. But that very same word that condemns you for that is the same word that clears you by Jesus' name. This is such why this 
this Bible, this Word of God has to be just our cornerstone. This is why David was making it his cornerstone, because he knew his heart. He knew how weak he was. This is the life of the disciple, I think, right before us. The life of any disciple of Christ is lived according to the Word. As it says elsewhere, I think it's in Acts, where it says that according to Jesus, we live and we move and we have our being. And who is Jesus? But the Word of God made flesh. As we learn in John chapter 1. There's no foundation on which we can safely rest, on which our faith can safely rest, other than God's Word. Your faith that Jesus has saved you rests on this truth, rests on this fact, not in the things that you are doing, but in what Jesus has done. And notice that's what David is saying. He says in verse 27, Make me to understand the way of thy precepts, so shall I talk of thy wondrous works. He wasn't leaning on his understanding. He wasn't leaning on his abilities, his strength. He knew his, his, own, uh, uh, his own inability. He knew his weakness. That's why he was readily confessing it. And he's appealing to God's strength. Make me to understand thy precepts. He says in the verse right before that, teach me. Make me to understand. Strengthen me. Grant me, verse 29, thy law graciously. This is the second little phase of repentance, we might say. It's an admission of weakness, an acknowledgement of your utter weakness, but it's also an appeal to strength. Strength that's outside of you, not an inner strength that you can muster in yourself. It's a strength that you are given. It's a strength that you are given in the gospel. This is what David was appealing to. It's a recognition of his total impossibility of saving himself, but it's also a recognition that that salvation has already been achieved for you. It's already been accomplished. It's already been established for you in the person and work of Christ. That's how he can say in verse 29, Grant me thy law graciously. The gracious granting of the law is Jesus giving you his fulfillment of the law. This is what we are appealing to when we, uh, when we are uh, appealing to God for strength when we repent. But lastly, very quickly, the last sort of phase, I guess you might call it, of repentance is here in the last couple verses. We have an acknowledgement of weakness. We have an appeal to strength. And also number three, an adherence to truth. An adherence to truth. Look at verse 30. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. I have stuck unto thy testimonies, O Lord. Put me not to shame. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. So David's experience here now, experience of being confronted with the reality of himself, with the reality of his weakness, he has experienced this repentance, has brought him from this place of cleaving to the dust, in verse 25, to now choosing the truth. From cleaving and being addicted to what this world has, he is now being uh, choosing, actively choosing the truth. That is the Spirit. That is definitely the Holy Spirit working. That's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. That's what he causes us to do. 
He causes us to choose the truth. This is something that we do naturally. This is something that comes uh, from David's own heart. It's not something that he would naturally do. He is brought to this place by God's law. Again, verse 29. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. You choose the truth when you realize what the truth is. You, you see, I don't think that we would... It, even though our hearts are bent this way towards this idea of saving ourselves by something that we can do and accomplish and, and whatever, we wouldn't naturally choose that way if we were given the option. Perhaps we would, I guess. But that's why we have to be told of this, 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 this other way. This other way that the law works. This other way that Jesus has made the law to work. Where instead of you saving yourself by trying to fulfill it all, he says, here, I fulfilled it all for you. Believe in this. It seems like the better way. It seems like better news. But often we don't choose that way. Such is why David here is confessing his weakness, uh, his confessing his condition. And now he's, he's appealing to the strength to continue choosing this way, choosing this truth. Notice verse 31, because I love this. He says, I have stuck unto thy testimonies. If you notice, uh, it's the same word from verse 25 where he says, my soul cleaveth. Cleaveth and stuck here are the same words in the Hebrew. So he's saying, my soul was sticking unto things of this world. And now because of your gracious invasion in my life, my heart is sticking to your testimonies. I think that's such a, it's such a great word, stick. And I pray that that would be our hearts, our souls, our desires, that we would stick unto what God says about himself. I like that he says, unto thy testimonies. What God has declared about himself is what he is sticking to, what he is going to stubbornly believe in. What he is going to just uh, totally put himself, attach himself to. As much as his soul was sticking to the dust, he is praying that his soul would now stick and cleave to the truth. The truth about what God says about himself. Again, he's praying for freedom from this addiction. Freedom from this dust. And that his faith would be made to stick to the truth. And he's vowing here, I have stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to the shame. I will run the way of thy commandments. He's vowing here. Again, he's vowing to do just that, to stick to, again, as I said, stubbornly refuse to compromise or make concessions for what God's word says. And I think this is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be a Christian in, in, in this day and age. A disciple is one who is doggedly determined to believe in what God's word says about himself. Regardless of what anyone else says, regardless of what anyone else might try and get you to believe, a disciple is determined, doggedly determined to stick to this truth, to stick to these testimonies, because these testimonies are true. Because this word is true. 
And when we realize that, when we, when, we, when we realize that amazing truth and we stick unto it, we will, as David says in verse 32, run the way of thy commandments with an enlarged heart. I love that picture, that enlarged heart, that the more David is sticking to his testimonies, the more his heart is becoming full. And it's not just that his heart is, is overrunning, his, it's not uh, just that his, his cup overrunneth with all of these things he's being told about what God's word says. It's just that his heart is becoming f- bigger and bigger to take on more and more of what God says about himself. The longer he is clinging to these testimonies, the more he is choosing and the more he wants of them. I will run after you. Because I know that the more I run after you, the more you're enlarging my heart to learn of you, to take in of you. This is what happens when we, as Hebrews 12 says, when we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We're running after him. And he's enlarging our hearts to be uh, told more of what what is true. And we adhere to what is true. This... Stanza, this is a prayer, this is the basis of David's life. That he was utterly weak, but Jesus is strong. And because of that strength, I'm going to adhere to what is true. This is the life of a Christian. The word we've been kind of exploring is repentance. And it was the great reformer Martin Luther who uh, the very first of his 95 theses back in 1517 when he nailed these 95 theses, these things that he thought was wrong with the church in Germany, in Wittenberg, he nailed these 95 theses to the door or so we're told. He may have not, but that's just history. But his very first one, you know what it was? When our Lord and Master Luther says, declares, Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The very first of his 95 theses that launched, it was probably already starting before that, but again, that's history, but this is really what we know as the launch of the, of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s against the Roman Catholic Church was the assertion that the life of a Christian was repentance. That's not some ascension where like you can be a bishop and then you become a priest and you level up into God's glory. It's actually a life of repentance where you continually realize your weakness. You continually realize that you are not strong and that Jesus was strong for you. His assertion was that this turning from sin wasn't just a one-time ordeal. It wasn't just a once-for-all-time once thing. It's a continual posture. It's a lifelong practice. These verses here represent the lifelong practice of a Christian. We cleave to the dust. We are made strong. We adhere to the truth. And then we fall and we falter and we cleave to the dust. And then we are made strong again. This is the life of a Christian. The life of those who are rescued by grace is right here. We we persevere in these lives of faithfulness, not because we are getting better or because we're getting stronger, but because we are leaning on this mercy of God. 
We are leaning on this testimony. As David says, we, uh, we, we persevere and persist in this life because only because we are sticking unto these testimonies. One commentator, Charles Bridges, in his commentary on this chapter, he says, Dependence upon the Lord and a deep sense of our weakness is the principle of perseverance. We persevere not because of how strong we are, but because of how weak we are. And because we're depending on these testimonies, depending on this truth. So then we have to ask, does our life look like this? Does our life look like one that is continually, constantly repenting? Are we putting up walls, putting up barriers? Are we cleaving to the dust, believing, uh, lying to ourselves that we're making it, that we are doing it, that we are accomplishing it? Are we repenting? Are we repenting of this way of lying? Are you independent? Are you dependent? Are you living a life of repentance? Let us pray.